0: Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. We're going to start in chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to go do kind of a little overview of the first four chapters of Acts. We did a series in Acts about four or five years ago, um, but this morning, I want to talk about a subject as we continue this study on what it means to live vertically, and by that, if you haven't been here or have missed a couple, that means to live in a way that honors the Lord in every single moment of our lives that deflects attention away from us and gives all praise and all glory to God in how we act and how we think and what we say and how we minister to people and how we show love to people, and this morning we'll see it in how we share the gospel of people. Now, you remember that we started um, about five weeks ago, and we talked about altars, that we need to have strong personal altars that they can't be broken down and in disrepair but then in our lives, we need to be sacrificing to the Lord and giving everything that we have to Him. And then we talked about that that is expressed in worship. It took us a little while to get warmed up this morning, but as we started to think about God's goodness and God's grace and how He's strong to save and how His grace is so amazing... By the end of the, of the time of singing, right, we were strong. We were praising God. We were lifting our hands to God. That comes out of our altars. As we're aware of the goodness of God, as we sacrifice ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, then worship comes out of us, and that worship is passionate and, and, and unafraid. Then we talked about prayer. That prayer springs out of worship. That as we think about the goodness of God, then we want to spend time in the presence of God. We want to dwell with Him and listen to Him and talk to Him and have relationship and fellowship with Him. Prayer is the time of intimacy and fellowship with the Lord. And then out of prayer, that leads to a life of uncompromised spiritual character. Uh, If you've missed any of these messages, go back and listen to them online. Because we need to get the grasp of all of this. That our character needs to be uncompromised. We need to be living for Christ in every single way. There can't be wavering. There can't be inconsistency that if we really love the Lord and we're living vertically, that our character has no compromise. And then last week, we talked about giving. That giving springs forth from these other four, that we start to give sacrificially to him, not from the leftovers, but from the first and the best. And that not only applies to what we just did, giving monetarily, but it applies to how we live for him, how we serve him, the time that we give to him. Now, this next topic out of the book of Acts is, is an outgrowth of the first part. And it comes later in the list because we really need to get those things right in order to be very effective. But this topic makes us uncomfortable. Uh, probably almost as much as prayer, maybe more, because we pray in our daily lives. We know that. We're able to do that. But when we talk about witnessing, when we talk about sharing our faith, that's where we start to get a little nervous. But the next step in a vertical life is to have a strong unashamed witness. A strong, unashamed witness. If we have personal altars, we love to worship the Lord, we love to call on the name of the Lord, our character is uncompromised, and we love to give, then the next thing that's going to spring forth out of that is to tell people about Christ. Now, we want to get the first parts right. We want to have our character be right. Those are really prerequisites that that prove that spiritual transformation has taken place. If we don't have the first part right, then we're going to look like hypocrites trying to share the gospel because people look at our lives and say, well, I don't really see any change in you. You don't have any credibility, and we won't, if we don't have those things right, have the knowledge to be able to tell people about Christ. The disciples really didn't have a bold witness, if we look at the Gospels and then we move into Acts, the the disciples didn't really have a bold witness until after their hearts were right, until after they were filled by the Holy Spirit. And then, as we're going to look at in a second, they couldn't be stopped. Once their hearts were in the right place, once they got it, what Christ had done, and once the Holy Spirit indwelled them, you could not shut them up. Before Acts 1, they're they're selfish, they're self-centered, they're immature, they're short-sighted, they're unaware, they're scared. That's not being critical. That's in the text of the Gospels. They're they're kind of a mess. They don't really have their act together. They're they're thinking about themselves. But but Jesus didn't say, well, I'm going to wait until you get your act together to, to call you to witness. In the middle of the Gospels, he sends them out. He says, you need to go out and tell people about me. And he put them in public positions to do ministry and to defend him. So what does that tell us? That tells us that it's not just, well, someday when I'm mature and when I finally grow in the Lord and I'm finally where I need to be, then I'll take the responsibility of witnessing. No, that's not how it works. From the moment we're saved, we're supposed to tell people about what's happened in us about the hope that makes us not ashamed, where we say, hey, my life is different. You should be able to see it. And over the next months and years, you're really going to see it. I'm going to be a completely different person because that's what God does, and I want to tell you about it. So every believer from the moment of salvation should be telling people about it. But maturity and spiritual development will make us so much more effective and so much more confident, and so much more bold, which is why after three years with Christ, and after the resurrection, and after the Holy Spirit, now when you get to Acts 1, the disciples are undaunted. They're completely focused. They're they're ready to reach people. And when the time comes, and the opportunity arises, they are completely, completely unashamed. You look at them at the end of Matthew, you look at them at the end of Luke, they're still timid, they're still fearful. We know that because when Jesus was betrayed, what happened? They all ran. But now that the Holy Spirit comes upon them and their lives are changed, now they are so bold and so ready to go. See, the church, which we see launched here in Acts 2, the church was launched by the witness of the disciples. Every day they were going out. Every day they were advancing the, the gospel. Every day they were talking about Christ. And their continued witness pushed people to understand about Christ and pushed people to understand that the conviction that they were feeling in their hearts was something they needed to respond to. If they had been scared because they were, if they, excuse me, if they had been silent because they were scared of their opposition, which was intense, Literally threatened their lives, not like we live where some people criticize us on Facebook or there's all kinds of stuff. No, not that. They were literally frightened for their lives. The intense uh, resistance against the gospel was so strong in Acts 1 and 2 that they kind of had to hide out. If they were silent because they were scared, or they were silent because they weren't sure what to say, because 50 days before, they had been insecure and timid and had abandoned Jesus. Or if they were unwilling because they, they didn't want to move out of what was comfortable, and they didn't really know how to do it, and and they, they just... they. Yeah, our lives are changed, but, but we don't really want to talk about it. If they had been like that, I wonder if the church of Jesus Christ would have been established the way it was. Now you say, well, the Holy Spirit would have done it. The Holy Spirit didn't need them. The Holy Spirit could have set up the church. Yes, but this is the way Jesus put in place. He said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go back to Jerusalem, and you're going to wait, and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Could the Holy Spirit have set up the church? Absolutely. Was that the way God wanted to do it? Nope. He said, it's your job. You've walked with me. You've seen and heard me. You know that I'm the Christ? You verified that when I said, who do you say that I am? And you said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, now go feed my people, feed my sheep. Talk about me. Tell other people about me. So without their willingness and their yieldedness and their readiness, things would have been very different. Now, translate that to 2016. We live in a time and a culture that is very similar to the first century. We're in a very defining time in our world, and I honestly believe that the Lord has given us a new opening in this country to now influence the culture for Christ, even though I think the culture now is going to be more hostile than it was before. The country is more polarized. There's more opposition But at least for the moment, we're not going to be legislated out of our spiritual freedom, which means while we have more latitude, we're going to have to be much more bold. This is not the time for the church to shrink back. This is the time for the church to say, look, we have an opening now. God's given us an opportunity now to go and share the gospel. So if we're already a little nervous and shy and we don't feel very confident to take a strong stand for the Lord, let alone to share our faith verbally, what do we do? If God's given us an opportunity and we don't fear very confident, we know it's our calling as disciples. There is absolutely zero dispute in that. This is our calling as disciples. Then how do we fulfill that courageously? How do we fulfill that effectively? Well, this morning I want to give you a couple principles that the Lord put on my heart this week, and they're here in the book of Acts. We're going to look at chapters 1 to 4, and I want to encourage you, write these down this morning. I, I was cleaning up uh, on Wednesday. I came up and was doing some work in the sanctuary and found a bulletin from last week. I don't know whose it was, but whoever did it, I think it was a, it was a, a woman because the handwriting was so beautiful. They, they, they had the whole outline of the message and our study, and I was so encouraged by that because there was a sense of understanding. When we listen, and I've said this many times, when you listen, don't just listen, because that's passive. Listen interactively. Not my words, okay? I prayed not one of these words is mine this morning. But when we listen, we've got to interact, because God's calling us to something. This is not just passive words like, you know, it's going to rain tomorrow. This is life-changing information that God wants to give us. This is supposed to stir us, and impact us and change us so this week we don't live like we did last week. So we need to write down, interact, write the verses. I want to encourage you because we're going to kind of go through it quickly because my time's short. But write down the passages. Go back and study Acts 1 to 4 this week in your personal devotions. You say, I don't have personal devotions. Well, now's a good week to start. Start on chapter 1. Read half of it tomorrow. Take notes as you read. Don't just fly through it. Well, I did my 10 minutes. Write down questions, thoughts, things the Spirit of God impresses on your heart, okay? So let me give you a couple spiritual principles that I believe will help us in the area of having an unashamed witness, all right? Start chapter 1, look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath-day journey. Mount of Olives is right across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. When they entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying That is Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Look at verse 14. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Okay, first principle. Prayer is the foundation for effective witnessing. Prayer is the foundation for effective witnessing. The church was essentially born out of a prayer meeting. Because the disciples were continually, that's the Holy Spirit's word, continually devoting themselves to gathering for prayer. And as they kept seeking the Lord and preparing their hearts for what God was going to do, that's when the Spirit came. It hit me this week, and I never thought of this before, that that there is not another time prior to this in all of the Gospels where we see the disciples praying. There's not a time where we ever see the disciples gathered as a group having prayer together. In fact, they go to Jesus at one point and say, teach us how to pray because we don't really know. So prior to Acts 1, there's really not a time. Now we see Jesus going off in the night to pray by himself. We never see the disciples. We see them panicking in tough situations, but we never see them saying, hold on, stop, let's call on the name of the Lord. We see Jesus twice telling them in the garden, watch and pray, watch and pray. There's temptation coming. And when he comes back after praying so fervently that he's sweating blood, he comes back and what does he find? They're all asleep. So prior to Acts 1, I can't think of a, certain, a, a single time where they're praying. Now, you get to Acts 1, verse 14, and why the sudden dedication to prayer? It's clear that all of them are committed to it because the Spirit says they were all in one mind about it. And I believe it's two things. I believe it's a combination of the reality of Christ's resurrection combined with the memory of Jesus' example. And they look at that, and they say, you know what? There is power in the name of the Lord. There's power in calling on the Lord. Every time Jesus was burned out at the end of the day of ministry, he wouldn't hang out with us and watch TV. He would go up into the mountains and pray, and the next day he'd have all kinds of power and strength. He's wearing us out. We're walking all over Galilee, and people are tugging at us, pulling at us, demanding of us, crying out to us, and Jesus is never tapped out. He's always strong. And I think they think back to that and say, you know what, maybe the secret of that was all the time he spent with the Father. And then they see his resurrection and they know he's who he says he was. So they get together and Jesus is gone. And he says, just wait, there's power coming. And they say, you know what, let's get together and let's start to call on the name of the Lord. Because when God's spirit comes, we want to be ready. It's interesting to me that we had such a great prayer meeting a couple weeks ago, and then last Sunday, I don't know if you sensed it, there was a completely different atmosphere to this room. There was a different spirit in this room. People were calling on the Lord. We were talking to the Lord between songs and praising Him. People were praying spontaneously. There was a completely different attitude. It was fantastic. The Spirit of God was obvious. How differently you think they felt, those 120 disciples, as they got together every day and prayed? Gone was the fear. Gone was the insecurity. Gone was the intimidation. Now they're just preparing their hearts, preparing their hearts. And then one day, when they're doing what they do every day, which is to gather to pray, there's a sound of a strong wind, and tongues of fire appear above their heads, and they begin to speak different international languages, And they start to praise God and declare him in a way they never have before. And the people that are in the city hear it and they say, what is that? Witnessing, effective witnessing, begins and is sustained through prayer. We will be apprehensive, we'll be ineffective without it. So when we come to an important outreach event like the Christmas tea that's coming up in three weeks, we need to be praying hard. I'm, not saying, I'm saying we need to be praying fervently for unsaved women that are going to come, for unchurched women that are going to come, who have maybe never heard the gospel before, for our speaker as she comes and ask the Lord to put a message on her heart to give to the women that God will anoint her and give her the right word. To the men, as we minister to people, men, we need to be praying, how can I minister to the women that are at my table? How can I minister as I make sandwiches? How can I show God's love as I'm interacting with the women that are walking in who maybe don't know Jesus? It's not just about gathering for a night and having tea together as a church. This is designed to bring people to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we better be praying. Now that principle leads us into the second one. I won't take as long on the later ones. The second principle is the courage and boldness in witnessing. Courage and boldness in witnessing comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. If we want to be bold, if we want to be confident, if we want to be courageous in witnessing, then the Holy Spirit has got to be invading our lives. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together. The crowd sought them, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak. In his own language. Now along with prayer, this is one principle that we cannot avoid or, or dismiss if we're going to be strong and bold in sharing our faith. Because few, if any of us, are this outgoing. Few of us are, are, are have a natural inclination when we wake up in the morning to compel people to make a life-changing decision. The disciples certainly weren't. As I said, they were timid and fearful. Just seven weeks before when Jesus was arrested, all of them ran. Only Peter followed, and Peter, who's about to preach, had actually denied Jesus in his presence three times, and the third time he cursed. So these were not men who were living with power and with confidence and with joy who were ready to tell people at the drop of a hat about Jesus Christ. They they weren't even sure themselves what they believed. They certainly weren't ready to stand for him. But now you get to chapter 2. And they're so confident and so bold and so completely unhesitant because the Spirit of God had invaded them and empowered them. And in His power, they started to talk openly about Him. And as soon as people in the city heard about it, they, they go, what in the world's going on? What is this that we're hearing? We're hearing people talking in our own language. And Peter gets up and he makes the gospel very clear. This is what it looks like when we're living vertically, when we're walking by the Spirit and under the control of the Spirit and in the power of the Spirit. People, I promise you, people will be drawn to it. We think that if we stand for Christ, that we'll be like repellent, that everybody will just back away. I don't want to be near that crazy Christian. Good grief. My God, no, let's go somewhere else. Look, it's one of them, Maud. No, that's not how it works. When we stand for the Lord, people say, I want to know what's going on. That's exactly what happens here. They start to hear their own languages and they don't go, Well, that's kind of weird. They go near and they say, What are you talking about? Tell us about it. So when we genuinely, effectively live out our faith and our conviction is obvious, it begins. And and people are drawn to it, and people come near, and then we can tell them the hope that we have. Listen, some people in this congregation have a natural ability to connect with people. You're extroverted, you're outgoing, you're so capable of interacting and making people feel comfortable in conversation that I'm actually jealous of you. You're so good at it, so think about how much God can utilize that. If you're completely committed to him and saying, Lord, channel my gifts to be used for you. I love people. I love to talk to people. I love to talk on the phone. I love to interact. I love to put my arm around people. I'm just, I just love people. You know what? If you are completely given to Christ and you say, Spirit of God, use that in ways that will glorify you and advance your gospel. God will do that. Now, the rest of us, we're not that comfortable socially, right? Maybe you're introverted or you're shy or you don't feel comfortable. Maybe you're not comfortable in your own skin. Maybe you don't feel right connected with people. Maybe you feel insecure. People don't like me. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do when I'm in a group. I kind of shy away in the corner. Maybe that's the point where you're actually pretty anxious in certain situations. So imagine what the Spirit of God can do to change you. Imagine how He can increase your comfort level and your effectiveness in talking to people and connecting people and and telling them about the hope that's in you if you're completely dependent on the Spirit to empower and change you. I have found that people that are most introverted actually are great conversationalists. They just need to break out of their shell. You get them one-on-one, they'll talk for hours. But in a group, they're uncomfortable. All right. Well, then if you're great one-on-one and you're not good in groups, then God's not going to put you in groups. He's going to put you in situations where you can talk to people one-on-one. So ask him to give you some boldness. Because God can change us. Listen, if he can redeem us from death to life, he can make me from an introvert to an extrovert, or at least can move the needle a little bit, right? Either way, we need the Spirit of God to help us. And that's especially true in the next area. Chapter 2, verse 7. Truth number 3. We have to be willing to witness to any person. We have to be willing to witness to any person without bias or prejudice. We have to be willing to witness to any person without bias or prejudice. Chapter 2, look at verse 7. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans weren't exactly looked at with, with great respect. How is it that we each hear them in our own language into which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Egypt, and districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, this was Pentecost. And just as a little uh, historical background, Pentecost was a feast that was celebrated 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. Remember that from last week's study? The Feast of First Fruits. Isn't it cool how it's all interconnected? So, there was Passover. Passover was remembering God's deliverance from Egypt and the concept of salvation through the blood of the Lamb. Then after Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was where they remembered God's provision as they wandered through the wilderness. And then after the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the Feast of Firstfruits. fruits we talked about last week, was where they brought the best and the first of the crops in gratitude. And then seven weeks after the Feast of Firstfruits, there was Pentecost. And Pentecost was the celebration of the harvest. Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread... Feast of Fruits, Pentecost. So it's a fantastic parallel that during the time of harvest that God would launch his church and that there would be a harvest of 3,000 souls on day one with more added every day. The Lord doesn't do anything accidentally. What an awesome picture this is. Now, for this to happen... And for the gospel to spread quickly throughout the world, because remember that was the assignment, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. For that to happen according to Jesus' commission, there had to be people from all nations all together. And if you look back at the text, that's exactly what happens here. And the disciples see this, they take the opportunity because God empowers them to speak in the language of the people of all these nations. And they now take the opportunity to talk. Now, the Jews were very specific about who they associated with. In fact, there were provisions that they had added to the law that they couldn't even talk to people who were Samaritan, which is why when Jesus talks to the woman at the well, it's so groundbreaking and shocking to the disciples because not only was it kind of proper for a woman to talk to a man, but it certainly wasn't proper for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan. But look at who's at Pentecost, people from all over. Including Egyptians, Romans, Arabs. They're not all devout Jews. We'll get to that in a second. But notice what we don't see in the text. We don't see a moment of hesitation. A moment of analysis as to whether they should talk to people from all over. They immediately seize the opportunity. Now this is so important. So utterly important for us as believers and as a church because the world is more divided and more biased and more segregated than ever. And for years, for centuries, the church has been a bad example of this. Any bias, any prejudice hinders our witness and we need to get rid of it. I want to be a multicultural church because heaven is multicultural. It is not white, it's not midwestern, it's not middle class. It is every tongue, tribe, and nation. So we need the Spirit of God's help to talk to people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. There is zero room for discrimination. There is zero room for racism. There is zero room for sexism. There is zero room for denominationalism. Jesus died for all. And the church has been hurt Over the years, because as one pastor I respect says, it's the most segregated hour of the week. And that shouldn't be. And to prove this, Jesus left us with an amazing example of how he witnessed and how he showed love. Think about the people that Jesus talked to. A Roman centurion. Lepers people who were social pariahs, people who were medical medically uh, uh, unworthy, a Samaritan woman, tax collectors, the demoniac, rich people, poor people. He even talked to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Jesus didn't walk around going, I'm only going to talk to Galileans. I'm only going to talk to devout Jews. I'm only going to talk to men. I'm only going to talk to women. He said, come. We just sang the song, come ye sinners, anybody, come. We want to share Christ with you. We want to tell the gospel to you. We want to tell you that Jesus stands ready to save you. We have no excuse in this area. I heard a pastor say once, if we can't talk to someone now, how are we going to worship next to them for all eternity? Because I'm not going to be in heaven with a bunch of white Midwesterners who are Republicans, who are a little bit overweight and and cheer for the Packers. Okay, that's not heaven. We actually are going to stand and worship next to bear fans. I know, it's hard to understand, but it's going to happen. We're going to stand next to African-Americans and Asian-Americans. We're going to stand next to Indians. We're going to stand next to Muslims who have been converted. We're going to stand next to women and men. We're going to stand next to people who are children when they died, people who are 95 when they died. We're going to stand next to everybody. We're going to stand next to people from different denominations. We're going to stand and we're going to worship the Lord. And if we're hesitant to do that now, that's why we need number one and number two. We need prayer and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. But maybe that's not our hesitation. Maybe you love, you work next to people from all races and that's fine. That doesn't bug you. Maybe, maybe it's what I believe is most people's hesitation in witnessing. It's that we don't feel equipped. What do I say? How do I say it? What verses should I quote? I'd ask you to raise your hands and how many feel that, but I'd be scared to know the number. So let's just look at the fourth principle real quick. The fourth principle is Scripture gives witnessing substance and depth. Scripture gives witnessing Substance and death. And we don't want to fumble all over our words when we share Christ, and we don't want to fall back into opinion because, as Facebook has proven the last month, there's nothing more fun than trying to convince somebody of your opinion, right? To be effective in witnessing, we need to be rooted and grounded in truth. Because as much as truth is being called subjective these days, and people seem to be resistant, I promise you at the end of the day, everyone wants to be certain and not fearful, which means everybody ultimately wants truth. So we need to study Scripture, we need to know Scripture, and we need to be unhesitant in using Scripture. And if you don't know what to say, and you don't know what verses to use, I want to say gently and with love, why not? If you've been saved more than six months, what are you waiting for? Why don't you have a knowledge? Please hear my heart. I'm your friend, I'm your pastor. Hear my heart. Why don't we have a knowledge of how to lead somebody to Christ? Why don't we have verses that we have memorized and know that we can talk to somebody about the Lord? My brain is full of more unimportant facts than anybody I know. I can quote statistics of sports figures. I can quote lines from movies that I saw 30 years ago. I can tell you about weird little intricacies of what's going on in culture. So much so that Julie looks at me sometimes and goes, how do you know that? And honestly, I don't really know. My brain has so much useless junk in it. So there should be a large portion up there. That's full of scripture and knows how to lead somebody to Christ. How much time do we use? Do we spend looking at our phones? Going to websites that waste hours. But we don't know the word of God well enough to share it. I saw so many friends around the world sharing their opinions about the election and getting in fights and having arguments on Facebook. But, but do we do the same in talking about Christ every day? Or are we kind of shy and hesitant and insecure? What might somebody think if I tell them about the gospel? Listen, you talk to them about your political opinions, about the latest recipe, and about what your kids are doing. Why don't you talk to them about Christ? The fact is, every believer should have a foundational knowledge of the main points of the gospel. If you're saved, you already should know them. We sang all about them this morning. Every one of us should have five, six, seven verses that we are ready to use, that are already memorized. We should have responses to questions that we know we're going to get. We should have responses to objections. Look at Acts. Look at chapter 2, verses 16 to 21. Chapter 2, verses 25 to 28. You'll notice them because they're probably written in different type chapter 3, verse 22, chapter 3, verse 25. These were all places where Peter quoted the Old Testament. But if you look at chapter 4 and verse 12, it says that they saw him and they realized that he was an uneducated, untrained fisherman. And yet when the time came, he was able to quote four different times Scripture to a crowd of thousands and debate the Pharisees who knew the first five books of the Bible from memory. And this untrained, uneducated, unlearned, novice fisherman stands up and he says, let me tell you what Moses said. Let me tell you what the prophet Joel said. Let me tell you what's happening here because you need to know Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, by the way, but he's the Savior of all. How can that be? Peter knew the word. Listen, if, if you don't know the verses to know, I want to help you. I'm going to put together in the next week a list of verses to know and memorize, to share the gospel with somebody. I I even am going to start praying about offering an evangelism study in the next couple months. The question is, would you come? Do we want to know how to share our faith? Well, we have to start with Scripture. We have to know Scripture. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that is not ashamed. If you're going to a jo- do a job in your field of expertise, you're not going to go in without the right tools. You're not going to go in without the right knowledge. You're not going to go on without the re- research. You're not going to go without the right experience. It would be like me trying to trying to put in a new toilet in my house. I would just sit there on the floor and stare at it and hope that somebody comes along that's a plumber. I have no idea how to do that. I would blow up my house trying to change the toilet. I can change a light bulb. I can change a light fixture. I can do a lot of stuff. I can't do that. If you're going to go in and be an expert, if you're going to go in and convince somebody that you know what you're doing in your job, you do the preparation. And yet we're called to be witnesses of Christ, and we're unprepared. Number five, quickly, i got to hurry. To effectively witness Ask people questions. To effectively witness, and actually to be effective in relationships, I would add that. Ask people questions. Now, Jesus was the master of this. He asked everyone questions, and not only understand their heart, but also to give them, uh, get them to see the error in their thinking, and to get them to see the rationale of the gospel. My father is a pro at this. It's almost annoying. He is so good at engaging people and asking them questions and within a minute or two getting to the gospel. My son's also good at he asks questions, very good at asking questions. And he's taught me this: the importance of asking people questions, because people love to talk about themselves. And when you ask people a couple questions and get them to talk about themselves, it gives you a lot of insight and it opens up the doors to see what their convictions are and what they're thinking and areas of hurt that you can then minister to them and you can direct the conversation of the gospel. We did this when I took a group of singles on a missions trip to England. We stood on the streets of London with a survey and the first question is, what's your opinion of God? Very broad question, but people talked. People from 23 nations, 38 states, we engaged for a week and we just talked to thousands of people. What's your opinion about God? What do you what do you think about Jesus? Oh, you start asking. People tell you. And then you can start to engage them. Notice how in chapter 3, verse 12, you can study it later. Peter does this. He directs the crowd's attention back to Jesus and his power and his mercy. And he says, listen, what's happening now is not because of me, it's not because of the disciples. We have no power and no authority. Only Jesus did. And that was important because Peter knew how his life had been changed when he met Jesus. And that leads us to principle number six. Principle number six is witnessing is most compelling when it comes from personal experience. Witnessing is most compelling when it comes from personal experience. Peter was so effective in sharing his faith because he had seen firsthand that he was completely different because of Christ. Who he was now, standing at Pentecost and sharing about Jesus to thousands of people from multiple nations. Who he was now was completely different than who he was 52 days before when he was sitting in the garden and saying, I've never seen that man before. And I certainly would never follow him. Hundreds of yards from the Garden of Gethsemane. Hundreds of yards from where Peter denied Christ in the courtyard. Now Peter stands before the crowd at Pentecost and says, Let me tell you about salvation through Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. This is the validation. This was real. And I want to tell you, the Bible says that you and I are living examples that Jesus is strong to save. You and I are living examples that my chains are gone and I've been set free. Now we have to show it in how we live and we have to say it in how we talk. And we have to tell people the gospel is authentic because look at my life. Jesus does save. He does transform. And I'm living proof. Peter and the others were unashamed because they knew the Lord and they knew God had changed them, which is why when you look at chapter 4, verse 13, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is amazed and he says, these men have been with Jesus. In other words, not that they walked with him for three years, but their lives were completely different because of Jesus. And because of that, they weren't afraid and they weren't ashamed. So let's get to the last thought. Last principle is that effective witnessing calls people to a decision. Effective witnessing calls people to a decision. Write these verses down. You can look at them later. Chapter 2, verse 38. Chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 12. They're all the places where the disciples presented the truth and said, now you have to decide. Will you accept Christ or keep rejecting him? When I was praying earlier after the songs, I did not plan that this morning. That was, I believe, totally the leading of the Lord, that there may be somebody in this room that doesn't know Christ that needs to receive him today. Maybe you're still pushing back against that, and you're going to walk out of here without your salvation secure. I want to tell you again, today's the day of salvation. I didn't plan that. That wasn't manipulation. That wasn't something where I said, after song number four, I'm then going to present the gospel. I was praying, and the Holy Spirit says, invite people to know Christ. Because we have to call people to decision. So let me ask you, will you accept Christ if you haven't, or will you keep rejecting him? See, it's awesome to tell people about Jesus and to validate it with our lives, but we can't let the truth just sit there and not challenge them to respond. This is an eternal life-altering gift from God, and we need to let them know it is time for you to receive it. Now, hopefully they'll get to that point, and because of a lot of prayer and the Holy Spirit, their hearts will be receptive. But we need to be ready to ask the question, are you ready to repent of your sin and trust Christ to forgive you? Because if you do, God will cleanse you forever and will adopt you with his own, and you will be free. And maybe when we ask that, maybe when I asked it earlier, people are just going to reject it. Maybe they even ridicule us. But I think we'll be surprised by how many people are ready How many people are ready for some spiritual assurance and stability in their lives? How many people are ready for Jesus? And as we pray and prepare and yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will use us to lead people to Christ. And if our lives exemplify vertical living, they'll be drawn to it, they'll recognize there's a difference. And as we stumble over our words and quote the verses we've memorized and and listen to them and hear what's on their heart, the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say and he'll convict their hearts and he'll lead them to Christ. I don't think there's one person in this room, I know it's true of me, that doesn't need help in this area. I don't think there's one person in this room that, that doesn't need more boldness, more courage, more confidence, more knowledge, more power. So you know what? Here's how we're going to end this study. We're going to ask the Lord to give it to us. Let's pray.